listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Efforts to stop the spread of COVID-19 have tested our abilities to stay safe in schools and at work, at the grocery store, and so many other places that shape our everyday lives. But what can we do about the virus spreading in places in our society that are designed to be cramped and crowded isolative, and punitive. Michigan prisons have seen terrible outbreaks of coronavirus cases over the past several months. And my next guest says the State Department of Corrections is not doing enough to protect inmates or staff and the communities they might touch outside. Joey Horan is a reporter who covers the COVID-19 pandemic in Metro Detroit for Outlier Media, and he joins us now. Joey, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, So let's start with this. Uh, Give us a sense of what the pandemic has looked like inside prisons. There was some very early reporting that I saw in the spring about outbreaks that were taking place in in jails and prisons uh, across the state, but it it tailed off. And I think uh, most of our listeners probably have not heard a terrible amount of what's going on. Uh, what's going on. So so give us a sense of what the pandemic looks like right now in jails and prisons. Right now, uh, we're in worse shape than ever. Uh, it, it's pretty bleak. Um, I'm going to kind of just unleash a, a torrent of numbers mm-hmm. real quick. There, there's over 5,000 active cases in Michigan's prisons. That's out of roughly 34,000 total people who are incarcerated. Um since the start of the pandemic, there's been 14,000 total cases. That's about 40% of, of all people incarcerated. 2,000 staff have tested positive. We don't know how many active active cases are, are occurring right now within staff. Um, there's two facilities right now, Ken Ross in the UP and Central Michigan in St. Louis, with, with more than 1,000 cases at each facility. Um, so I know that's a lot of numbers, but um, they kind of illustrate the, the magnitude of the problem. Um, and when you talk about the trajectory of the pandemic um, in prisons, it, it kind of loosely tracks to what we've been seeing in the community. Like you said, in the spring, there were outbreaks, just like we had pretty bad community spread in Michigan in the mm-hmm. spring, mm-hmm. kind of tailed off. There was a lull in, in the middle of the summer. And then it started picking back up again towards the end of summer, and and right now it's just worse than ever. So, so I also am very curious about how you manage something like a pandemic, and 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 this pandemic in particular, which uh, is fueled by close contact, uh, it's fueled by interpersonal interaction. Uh, in a prison where those things are unavoidable. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of prison is that it is small, it is cramped, people are uh, kind of, you know, sardined in uh, together. What, what is it that the, the Bureau of Prisons has been able to do, or the Michigan Department of Corrections has even been able to do to try to stop the spread inside? What, what does that even look like? Yeah, so so early on, their priority was really making sure that there was no way the virus could enter from from the outside. The, the major oversight the whole time has been 
that the, that staff is the most likely way for the virus to enter. But from the beginning, um, MDOC has, you know, starting in early March, they, they discontinued any in-person visitation. So no visits from family, no visits from friends. Um, they largely reduced the amount of transfers of prisoners between facilities. Um, there was a reduction for a while in terms of um, new people being processed from local jails coming into prisons. Um, once cases are present, you know, pretty severe lockdowns are put in place. Schedules are even more regimented, um, less yard time, you know, all the sort of extracurricular activities that can make prison life, you know, somewhat tolerable are, are discontinued. Um, so it's really just been an ongoing lockdown. Um, but from the beginning, public health experts and prison health experts um, have been stressing the need to, like, de-densify prisons. You know, you, you mentioned people are intentionally packed in like sardines. Mm -hmm. um, it that That inherently makes this a very hard situation to control once a virus is introduced um so people have been hammering on reducing density we we know how many thousands of people are in prisons for for low-level drug crimes mm -hmm. for for crimes that people call lifestyle crimes things that don't present a danger to the community um but there really isn't because of michigan state laws there's really not that much flexibility in terms of releasing people, you know, before what's called their earliest possible release date. So without without reducing the density, it, it is a pretty impossible task to, to control this virus once it's present. Those numbers I listed at the top of the call show that once the virus is in a facility, MDOC really doesn't have much it can do to, to stop the spread. Mm -hmm. Um which is why it is so crucial to try to prevent it from getting in with preventative staff testing. Yeah. Um, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Joey Horn. He's a reporter who is covering the COVID-19 pandemic in Metro Detroit for Outlier Media. We're talking about the effect that the pandemic has had on Michigan's prison population, people who are incarcerated uh, and the staff who work with them and their families that they go home to uh, if they are released, as well as the communities that they live in uh, once they are out of prison. Um, we're talking about how hard hit uh, this prison population has been by the by the pandemic, uh, something that has not gotten nearly as much attention as it probably should have. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you uh, about how you think we should be trying to keep the virus from spreading uh, in our prisons. Uh, do you support the idea of releasing some inmates early in order uh, to spread people out more? Uh, do you support rigorous testing protocols in prisons to prevent spread uh, before it happens. We'd also love to hear from you if uh, you're somebody who has a relative uh, or a friend even who is part of the prison system or is in jail uh, here in Michigan uh, and what your experience has been trying to keep track of their health during the pandemic. I know that has also been uh, a real issue is people on the outside really worried 
about the people who are on the inside, who they're close to, and what's happening uh, with them. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll try to make them part of the conversation uh, as well. Uh, Joey, I want to talk a little about uh, Outlier and the work that you guys are doing here on prisons and how you got onto this story. Uh, Outlier's model for people who are unfamiliar uh, is to be in touch with Detroiters uh, on a consistent basis, asking them about the things that are going on in their lives and responding to those things. This is a story that you guys heard from people in the the community, the Detroiters uh, who reached out and said uh, they were having a problem with uh, family or friends who were uh, in the prison system. Give us a sense of the kinds of things that you were hearing that told you that this was uh, important journalism to turn your attention to. Yeah, so... I mean, within weeks of of the pandemic starting, uh, Outlier kind of totally, we retooled our our text message system to really focus our attention on the pandemic. Um, And as soon as we launched that and started sending out text messages to Detroiters, um, within a couple weeks, several parents uh, of incarcerated people, you know, texted me or, or texted into the system saying that they were really concerned for, for the health of, of their loved one. Um, they, were, they were having a hard time, really. Once these lockdowns happen, it becomes harder to access um, JPay, which is an internal email system in the prison. It becomes harder to access the phones. So, you know, during this really scary time, people were losing, t- losing touch with their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a couple parents who I started talking to whose sons were actually very close to um, one had already been approved for parole and was getting close to, to his release date. And another was about to go up for, for parole to see if, you know, he would he would be able to be released. Um, and in in both cases, in that time between being approved for release and actually being released, um, both of these men caught the virus, both, both survived, but um, it was a pretty big ordeal for them. Mm. Um, you know, the, the isolation that, that resulted from, from being in a positive unit. Um, one person was, was transferred to a different facility that was kind of propped up as a, as a temporary uh, housing location for positive cases. So it was just a really chaotic time, nerve-wracking for families, um, you know, and you get a 15-minute call a day to touch base with, with your, you know, your son who's sick and is just about to come home. Um, so it was, it was conversations with parents who were in a lot of distress and mm. frustrated because the parole board had already approved, you know, their sons to be released but but because of a law known as truth and sentencing there's there was not one thing that could be done to get their sons out of there a day early um and you know you just have to think about that feeling magnified by 34,000 
right. people right. and their families. Yeah. Um, and then again, the, the 10,000 staff who are going into, into work every day. Right. Um, I mean, that's the other, so, that's the other thing is, is, you know, there are people who are not incarcerated, who are in prisons every day because they work there and the, the risk to them as well as the communities uh, that they that they live in is also is also quite high. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's there's there's no clear line between prison health and public health, and that's something that public health experts have been hammering on from the beginning. It, it goes both ways. Um, uh, one prominent expert, Homer Venters, warns kind of about prisons becoming actually vi- the reservoirs for the virus, mm-hmm. where you know, maybe things out in the community are controlled, but if you have a, you, if you have this reservoir of cases in the prison, and then you have guards going in and then coming out and bringing the virus back out into the community, it becomes a lot harder to to control. Sure. You know, the spread of it within the community. So there there is no bright line between prison health and public health. Um, we're all implicated we're all in it together um literally and yeah. and yeah yeah uh, i, I want to get some callers uh, into the mix here uh, jackie and ypsilanti jackie welcome to the show yeah my husband is incarcerated at um Egler reception guidance center in jackson he was returned to prison in september on an alleged parole violation and he um works in the intake um, section and so every single day they're still bringing in new new prisoners into the system from jail from mm. um, the parole absconder unit rather than reducing the density um, and they're not really able to control quarantine who's positive and negative over the weekend the numbers at that facility tripled of positive cases wow so um, he says it's really just been out of control in his unit he was still COVID uh, negative. Um, he was only one of 12 people still COVID negative in a unit of 240. Wow. And they weren't at that time wow. <laughs> isolating anyone that's am- That's amazing, Jackie. He, I'm really sorry uh, that your husband is, is experiencing that, but I'm actually really glad that you called and, and shared that experience with us. Um, uh, Joey, I wonder if you can shed some light on what they're supposed to be doing with this. I mean, if you're, if you're still uh, having lots of prisoners go into prison, um, what's the testing protocol to make sure that they're not bringing uh, COVID in? And is, is the department on top of that in any way that would stop the spread of it inside? Yeah, so the, the testing protocol is, is any, any person coming in from a county jail or any person getting transferred from another facility um, has to be tested prior to that. Um, most of, it seems like most of the recent outbreaks have been tracked back to staff. Um, and staff are only required to be tested once once there are active cases present in the facility. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this, this backwards thing. Like I, kind of use the metaphor of it's like installing a a fire alarm in your house once once it's already engulfed in flames um so there have been reports people people do look to to transfers and are worried that that's a possible 
way of the virus entering the facilities, but it, it does seem more likely that it's happening with staff. But to Jackie's point, um, in terms of once the virus is present and, and the tools that MDOC has to kind of segregate positive cases from negative cases, I've heard reports of just it's really challenging. It, it can be pretty chaotic. Yeah. Um, like she said, cases tripled over over the weekend. So, you know, ideally that involves isolating positive cases, um, also isolating close contacts of those positive cases, and then having negative cases. So you, you really need three very distinct cohorts of, you know, sure. but, but the, the challenging thing is with close contacts, you don't know within those close contacts who might end up being positive, who, who might end up being negative. So it creates a lot of confusion in the moment. Um, and it's challenging, but we're in months, you know, eight or nine of this. So I think the protocol should be there. You know, we, as, as citizens, as journalism, journalists, you know, kind of need to, to push in on, on holding the MDOC accountable for, for failing to contain these outbreaks, right. you know, right. eight or nine months into this. Yeah. Uh, Terry on Twitter has a question about vaccine rollout, which is about to happen really soon in our country. Um, what is that going to look like in prisons? Is there a plan to try to get uh, the vaccine distributed inside uh, inside the prisons. Yeah, the the New York Times actually recently wrote a piece about this. Um, when should when should inmates get the vaccine? Um, that's going. I think it's going to depend on on what each state decides to do. I don't know what the conversations are like right now in Michigan around when um, incarcerated people would get the vaccine. I know under national guidelines, prison staff will be prioritized. As, as, you know, kind of that first responder class mm-hmm. uh, to get the vaccine. Um, uh, I know North Carolina has made it a priority to, to get incarcerated people the vaccine um, relatively quickly. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's going to be it's going to be up to the to the state to decide how it wants to use its vaccine resources. And, um, you know, that's that's a that's going to be an interesting decision. You know, it's going to really put into sharp, even sharper focus. How much do we care about uh, the health of incarcerated people? Um, And as soon as you're put into custody of the state, you know, the care, your care, your health is the responsibility. It's their responsibility. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the, the comments and Terry, on Twitter, thank you for that question. Let's go quickly to Elena in Detroit. Elena, we only got about a minute and a half left, but I want to get you in here. Hi, good morning. Hi. I want to also mention that the juvenile lifers without parole had made a settlement um, on behalf of their attorneys, a settlement with the attorney general mm-hmm. to finally get their new sentences since the Miller case said that it was unconstitutional right. to incarcerate children. And the Michigan has the highest number of people still awaiting new sentences. So when they get their sentence, when they get resentenced, they go to the county where they were prosecuted, where they were sentenced originally. And then when they come back to the jail, they're supposed to be quarantined before they return to their prison. Right. And the quarantine period is supposed to be two weeks, but it's been up to 50 and 60 days. 
and they're quarantined in a very crowded facility oh. at Robert Cotton with people who have the virus. So people are really being subjected to a de facto death penalty in many cases. Yeah. Wow. When we don't have the death penalty in the state, and we should have already been given new sentences to all the people. There's over 300 now awaiting new sentences. Right, right. Now, Elena, I'm glad you called and, and made that point. I mean, uh, Joey, we only have about 30 seconds left, but uh, th- there is this complexity of the prison system and figuring out how to deal with all of the different variations is one of the things that seems to me to be a, a challenge. Yeah, it, there's no doubt that it's that it's challenging, uh, and it's an immense challenge. Um, but when we look at the numbers, MDOC is failing, and I believe they could focus more on preventative staff testing to try to prevent the virus from coming in um, without being able to reduce density that really seems like the one remaining variable. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Joey Horan, reporter with Outlier Media. Great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.